It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. If you need a great jacket, fleece, or any other outerwear, you know Outdoor Research has you covered. But building great outdoor gear is not all they're up to right now. They've seen a need in their community, and the folks at OR are not waiting around for somebody else to come to the rescue. So Outdoor Research is converting its onshore manufacturing facility in Seattle to produce personal protective equipment for the medical community in response to the COVID-19 crisis. This will enable Outdoor Research to produce upwards of 200,000 masks per day. For detailed info on OR's bold PPE manufacturing initiative, head to OutdoorResearch.com. And while you're there, check out the UberTube, which can double as an appropriate face mask for civilians. And frankly, if there was ever a time and place for the legendary Outdoor Research Ninja Clava, it's right here, right now. You may feel like these are uncertain times. Well, that's true. But one certainty is that we're living through history. Right now. A historic pandemic. The biggest civil rights movement of this generation. And then there's climbing, which just sort of feels like the least important thing. In Ulysses, James Joyce writes that history is a nightmare from which I am trying to awake. It seems as if many people are actually, genuinely beginning to wake up to this nightmare and speak its name. Wake up to the injustices of our society. Something feels different to me about these protests. A lot of people who might normally shrug their shoulders have been forced to stop ignoring these uncomfortable truths. That we're living in a system with two sets of rules. One for people with white skin, one for people of color. One for women, one for men. One for the rich and one for the rest. And that we really need to come together to fix this. This is Andrew Bisharat, and you're listening to The Runout. I'm here with my co-host, Chris Caloose, and today we're going to try to unpack this painful, fraught, and historic moment by speaking to one of the most delightful, interesting, and intelligent guests we've ever had on the show. That would be Dr. Favia Dubik. She's a pathologist from Albuquerque who is working on the front lines of the pandemic. She's also a cancer survivor, a strong climber, a veteran of American Ninja Warrior. Perhaps most important, she's a strong voice for climbing one of the many voices that people in climbing media, such as myself, could always be doing more to amplify. Chris and I really love this conversation. Please make sure you follow Favia on Instagram since we reference her feed copiously during this show. Her handle is at FelineFavia. Without further ado, Dr. Favia Dubik. So, Andrew, you know that I've been training. I've mm-hmm. been training all winter. And uh, at one point in my training, my coach, Chris Hampton, asked me to do isometric one-arm hangs. So your arm is bent. You're hanging on to whatever you can possibly hang on to. And then you try to stay static right there. And and basically for me, to, when I try to do that, my arm is like a... It's like a piece of overcooked ramen. I just like it, <laughs> it just explodes towards the ground. Like I have no power whatsoever in that uh, in that realm. And so 
about the time he was having me do these things and it was just like embarrassingly terrible even though i'm by myself uh, when i do them i i found this instagram that uh where this woman who's just i don't know how she got this strong but doing these one-arm isometric hangs with like kettlebells all over her. anyway it was a complete inspiration maybe like 10 percent uh you know demoralizing um because i was so bad at it but just the other day you texted me and said hey you need to follow this woman on instagram because she's agreed to come on the run out and i was like no way i know exactly who fabia dubik is because i've been following her for months love her instagram and i want to welcome her to the run out right now welcome to the show hi thank you so yeah with that preface i mean what's the secret to uh to isometric strength fabia <laughs> I'm not sure there's any secret, um, just a lot of practice and probably just some good genetics, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> You're screwed. Well, I can, I, yeah, exactly. I, I, got, I can work on half of that. Um, I just think my arms are too darn long. How's that? <laughs> Fabia, welcome to the show. And um, I, uh, I, too, have been impressed with your feats of strength that you post. Uh, you know, doing L-sit push-ups with, you know, cats on your lap. How many uh, pets do you have? So we have five cats and one dog. You know, the reason that we wanted to bring you on the show is there's, there's so much going on right now. Um, and in some ways, you know, the talking about isometrics and climbing is feels so um, ridiculous in some ways because <laughs> our country is yeah. falling apart and we're in the midst of a pandemic and... Yeah, oh, wait, uh, we're in a pandemic still. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, but, uh, you know, you're a doctor and you can tell us about that. And uh, you're a member of the black community. And so we wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, how we as climbers should be thinking about our our role in the climbing community and in the world at large. And um, but before we get into all that, I, I just would love to. You, you have such a fascinating backstory, and um, maybe we could just dive into the probably what must have been one of the darkest moments of your life with um, with uh, the news that you were diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, that happened. I guess in 2012, I was a third year med student, and I had been climbing for about a year and a half, and my whole life. Once I discovered climbing, pretty much was around climbing every weekend. I was at the crag in uh, West Virginia, uh, or sometimes we'd go down to the red. And then suddenly, pretty much my life kind of fell apart. Uh, when I started not being able to breathe, I couldn't lift my arms above my head. And after months and months of going to the doctor, I got the news that I had advanced stage cancer, lymphoma. And it was definitely life-changing. I went from being super, super active to uh, being bedridden for, for many months. It was pretty soul-crushing, actually. I, I assume you've beaten the cancer, or is it still something that can come back? Or what's the current status of your, your condition? So for lymphomas, it's not something you can actually cut out. So you do chemotherapy and or radiation and um, to shrink the tumor and hopefully kill it. But I still have a mass in my chest. And so it's, you know, you'll no, you can never really know if it's all gone and dead. But 
I have now like six, seven years post-treatment. So the likelihood of it coming back is really, really slim. So I, I don't worry about it too much, but I still have uh, six-month checkups with my oncologist. And how, how, tell us quickly just how you discovered climbing and what, what um, how, how do you describe yourself as a climber? What kind of climbing are you interested in and how did you get into it? So I am a roof boulderer. I pretty much only like to climb roofs overhung, <laughs> like my back parallel to the ground. No, like 45 degrees. <laughs> so what? is there, a, is there a, a reason for that preference? <laughs> Um, there is, I, I think it started when, uh, I guess I have some back issues and I can't actually fall on my feet from a high distance. So, or I dislocate my hip and then I have to be carried out of the crag. So to avoid that, I just started doing low ball problems and most of them were roofs. And then I just, you know, felt really safe. I didn't hurt myself. And then I just, you know, kept doing it and doing it and I got much better at it. And that's just what I prefer now. Um, so that's, that's how I got into roof bouldering. I started bouldering back in, uh, technically in 2010, I was visiting my mom in Tennessee and I pretty much didn't know anyone, but one person there and me and him had already seen every movie in the theater. <laughs> so I Googled what to do in Nashville and climbing came up and we went, I loved it. And I was actually starting grad school at Columbia at that time. And the first week they had like an activity fair. I signed up for the, you know, Columbia student discount at one of the climbing gyms for a whole year. I went and I didn't like it. So I didn't go back for most of my time at Columbia. And then when I was starting med school, I was going to move away. So then I actually calculated how many times I had to go to break even. And during that time, I fell in love and I've never looked back. What, what was the experience that you had that made you go from loving it to hating it all of a sudden? Was there a specific thing or... There was no specific thing. I think okay. it was just too soon after being a competitive division one athlete. Uh, okay. I was just kind of burnt out from working out and my body needed time uh, to rest and my mind needed time to rest because for four years, my whole life had just been around track and field. And okay. so I just wanted, I wanted a little bit of a break. So I did that, but you know, it drew me back in. <laughs> No more locker rooms for a minute or two. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Right. I got you. Okay. I mean, one of the great things about climbing that um, I've always appreciated is that, you know, you don't meet many people in their 30s and 40s who are still doing any kind of team sport or division one type of sport. And so climbing has that longevity that, um, you know, pole vaulting or something doesn't have. Exactly. I plan to do this for many, many more decades. It's amazing, uh -huh. though, that uh, just to go back real quick is that I've done, you know, however many interviews at the Norma cast and we get around to this, like, what kind of climber are you? And I honestly have never heard anyone be as specific <laughs> as what you just told me. I was like, OK, like, all right, that's, you know, that's pretty specific, like, there, you know, in the world. So do you I, I, live in a place that allows you to a variety of these sorts of problems that you like? I do, actually. Okay, good. 
There's there's three areas in Albuquerque where there's just a bunch of roofs. It's just nothing but roofs. All right. It's so roof bouldering mecca. It, it really is. And I'm I'm close to Priestraw and Waco. Hmm. So I have unlimited roofs pretty much at my disposal. It's also it. um, f- oh. far more impressive to call yourself a roof boulder than a low ball boulder. <laughs> True. Yes. <laughs> I like the spin. <laughs> you should start a roof bouldering podcast. <laughs> that would be the most esoteric climbing podcast of all time. <laughs> There's a lot to it. So, okay. Maybe. Yeah. I mean,. <laughs> Okay, before, let's get to the be, doctor part. <laughs> well, before we before we d- okay. uh, dive into your professional career, I, I want to flag one more um, of your athletic pursuits, um, which was your time on American Ninja Warrior. So, how did you get into that, and what was what was that experience like? So, I competed two seasons on American Ninja Warrior, um, and I guess it was maybe December two years ago or so. I got a message from. Ninja Warrior asking if I would apply. And I actually was kind of like, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm a climber. I'm a, I'm a roof boulderer. <laughs> I don't know much about obstacle courses. Uh, but I decided to give it a, a shot. And I was competing in April. So I only had a couple of months to get myself prepared for the show. Um, so I pretty much joined we actually have quite a few ninja gyms here in Albuquerque. So I joined Ninja Force and they actually literally had to hold my hand through all like the most basic of the obstacles because I was terrified out of my mind. I actually had to go to like hypnosis to try to get braver because I was so scared. And competing the first year was was pretty wild. Uh, I saw, I've actually been a big fan of the show for years. So I, I saw all my Ninja Warrior, like, you know, heroes there. And everybody is so friendly. So they gave me advice on how to try to conquer my fear for the, for the show. And when I got on there, I screamed my way through the first obstacle. <laughs> and I screamed my way through most of the second obstacle. But I hadn't really learned how to lache property, properly at that time. So I made a little bit of a mistake and lacheed the wrong direction and didn't get past the second obstacle. But I took the whole next year to just focus on laches. So luckily for my second year on the show... Um, obstacles two and three were basically lache based. So I fell on obstacle four, a, a parkour, uh, type obstacle, which is definitely my weakest part of ninja, but it was, was fantastic. Was it, was the fear based on the obstacles themselves or was it being on television or what was the fear from coming from the obstacles? I actually do better, uh, in front of cameras so I probably would have done worse if I was like alone in, in a room by myself. It was just, just the obstacles. It just, they, they take coordination um, and speed. It's kind of like, you know, cop climbing these days where you have to run along, you know, uh, volumes and then do all these paddle dinos. It's kind of like that, which is not my strong suit either. Uh, but, you know, with, with practice, I got mildly better and, still had to scream my way through a lot of it 
Yeah, and the scream you're referring to is quite a scream. I watched the uh, the YouTube recap of your performance, and it was, um, you know, as YouTube comments are are want to be, there's lots of discussion about about your screaming. Is that something that you br- you bring to your roof bouldering as well? Yes, actually, it's it's usually less from being afraid from trying hard, but I really release most of my emotions just from just in screaming like it just if you're afraid if you're screaming you know you're not afraid anymore because you're too busy thinking about screaming and if you're trying hard you're releasing all that energy in your scream so i find screaming just really helpful in my athletic pursuits but that's where it stops (laughs) chris maybe you should uh try screaming with your isometric my isometric (laughs) (laughs) ah yeah let's Let's put the, I'll put that in the bag of tricks. We'll find out how that goes. <laughs> Quickly, Fabia, can you tell us about your professional life and, and what kind of doctor you are and what you study or do? Yes. Yeah, so I'm a pathologist. I am in my last couple of weeks of residency. And on July 1st, I will be starting a fellowship in hematopathology. So we are the doctors that diagnose leukemias and lymphomas, anemia, pretty much anything, any disease that arises in blood and lymph nodes. And so, you know, diving right into the COVID-19 stuff, is there any, have you been following the the research or the reports that are coming out about the, uh, one of the things I did see at some point, I don't know if you saw this, but there was speculation that this could not just be a respiratory disease, but a, a blood-based one. I don't know if there's any truth to that. Don't 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 you know don't at me if i'm wrong but that's just something i saw on the internet so i don't know maybe you could give us your if you have a professional you know 30,000 foot view on on this pandemic i'd love to hear it so part of my current job in residency right now is actually answering covid based questions uh for clinicians but usually more surrounding around lab questions but i i have not heard about uh COVID being more of a blood disease. We are currently doing respiratory swabs to to make the diagnosis. Uh, we don't really use um, like any other, we don't use CSF, like the fluid around your brain. We don't use poop. Uh, so it's, it's mostly respiratory. And our lab has been pretty much working 24 seven for all these months to be able to test as many people as we possibly can. Um, so that's part of actually part of our job is running the lab. And I did not realize when I joined pathology that I would actually be like a, a frontline type doctor, hmm. but you know, the lab is super important in a virus um, pandemic. Yeah. That's really um, interesting that, that you probably thought of yourself as some sort of clinician. And then here you are like right on the front. front lines yeah. Yeah. Like the, the biggest historical <laughs> event in like a hundred years, you know, pretty much. I thought like, Oh, we're in the back of the hospital, you know, like right. stay to ourselves. Then all of a sudden now we're, we're in the news and you, you can't move forward without, without us, which is actually why I joined in the first place was because uh-huh. like, but more for cancer, because like when right. I was sick, they actually couldn't get a diagnosis for nearly a month. The mm. pathologist couldn't. So I was waiting on them and basically just dying. And I couldn't get treatment until they said what I had. So that's why I joined. But I didn't really think of it in the bigger scope. Like if there is a virus or anything like that, like we're crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's definitely been eye-opening, um, but also really exciting um, to be 
to be out there. That's interesting that you say exciting because I was about to ask you if, if it if it felt stressful at all. Um, I mean, obviously, the whole thing feels stressful to everyone, but but you you do you feel like you know this is sort of a challenge that uh, that you're rising to, or are you feeling like um, you're contributing? Yes, uh, I mean it's very stressful as well. Um, the amount of work it takes to get lab tests going up is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just trying to, you know, keep up with all the research because clinicians ask, you know, they, they keep you on your toes. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are doing, I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job here, at least in New Mexico, of trying to stay on top of it. And having accurate and fast lab tests was very crucial to that. that, that that's what's important to, to, to stop the spread. As this thing has progressed, just in general, are are do you does, does your work make you feel more optimistic, or do you do you find yourself sort of, you know, hitting your head with uh, with your hand and, and worrying even more? It's actually kind of a roller coaster. Okay. So it, it it depends on the day. Like some days when our ICU is at a hundred and ten capacity, I become mm-hmm. very stressed. <laughs> Right. But but when it, it goes back down and I see our numbers are, you know, decreasing or at least flatlining, um, I feel more hopeful. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's definitely a roller coaster ride being on the inside because I know every day exactly how much our hospital is like overflowing or how much we right. can handle. Have you guys been impacted by, I mean, I know that the Four Corners area, Arizona, uh, Navajo lands have seen a real hard time with this. Has that impacted what you're doing down in Albuquerque? Are you a satellite hospital for that area? Yes. So UNM actually serves all of New Mexico, like Southern Colorado, Western Arizona, a little bit of Texas. Sometimes right. a little bit Oklahoma. We we serve a, a very large um, geographic range, so right. we've actually been transporting patients from the Navajo Nation to our hospital. Um, mm-hmm. So that that definitely has impacted us. Um, is there any advice to give people in terms of you know? There's a lot of like these antibody tests that people are are doing, and they seem to be a varying um, you know degrees of effectiveness. Um, I don't know if you have any advice for people who are interested in just best practices or pursuing the antibody test route or what what people should be doing or how should they should be thinking about that side of uh, this pandemic. So currently our like university status on antibody testing is that we don't know exactly the clinical utility of it. And since we do have limited testing facilities and capabilities. We're not suggesting that everyone run out and get a, you know, antibody test for curiosity's sake, even though like personally, I am so curious. <laughs> like I really want to know, but it's not, it's not quite recommended yet for everyone to get it. So we'll have to wait and see if uh, we can see if there is herd immunity and all those sorts of things to make it more useful for everyone to get an antibody test. And are you comfortable um, with the general recommendations around climbing right now in terms of of what people have, you know, organizations and things have put out once uh, once stuff started opening up and and the idea that we could go climbing again? Is that pretty comfortable for you in terms of what you know about the about the uh, virus? For the most part, yes. I think it partially depends on 
where you're located and how much of a, a hotspot you are. Right. Um, because if, you know, if it's really running rampant, then I would definitely feel less comfortable. But I, I think if you're conscious about how you're climbing, like just make sure you have hand sanitizer and that you try not to touch your face. Like I know it's so hard because we all walk around with chalk on our face all the time, showing that we, we touch our face. But I've tried to make, you know, a conscious effort. It's like, you know, don't readjust my mask. Don't touch my face. Hand sanitize. You know, before, after, and during climbing. So I, I think if we all are just a little more conscious about it, which is very difficult, we can make the climbing gyms as safe as they can be. But, it, you know, it will be, there's an inherent risk that, you know, we, we can't quite avoid because they can't clean the holds every day. All right. So I, um, I'd like to touch on this last big hot topic. Um, you know, we've seen so, such horrific events in the last couple of weeks, but, um, you know, and a lot of, uh, pain and, uh, difficult conversations and, um, and also some positive stuff as well, but, uh, you know, terrible circumstances to have produced it. What's your grand view on what's going on in this country right now? And, and specifically maybe think about, how this has made you think about the climbing world or the, you know, the outdoor industry. Let's see if you can uh, <laughs> tee that, tee up like that big question. <laughs> well, so for the current events, it's not a, none of this is a surprise to me or our community because we've been living this, you know, I've been living this my whole life. Um, maybe not, maybe not necessarily in the climbing community because I'm relatively new to it, but all these events are things that, you know, I've been taught as, as a kid, you know, be extra polite to the police. Like don't make, you know, sudden movements because you don't know what they're going to think you're doing. Like all these things are what you're, is, is how you're raised as a black person in America. So these things, I'm not like surprised. Um, and I've had really difficult times sometimes in the, in the climbing gyms with race matters. So I'm actually really happy that now people are aware because before when I would mention various incidences that had happened that were racially motivated, the responses I received by non-Black people were, it had to be a misunderstanding or no, that didn't happen. Or are you sure they meant that? And now I'm hoping that there will be a change in the response they won't question, you know, our experiences or just say no to something that they weren't even there to, uh, to experience. So I, I think this is all positive And I really hope that people learn that racism is everywhere. So it's not the outdoor community, the outdoor spaces, the climbing gyms aren't exempt from that. So, uh, I hope people take this to heart and start looking at how people are treated in their uh, communities and stand up and, you know, say like, hey, why did you do that to that person? Or why did you say that to her? Like stand up because silence, the silence hurts a lot as well. You know what you just said really rings home to me in terms of like, if, if you're reporting or, or, or telling your friends about an incident that you felt was racially based. And I mean, there's like just flat out 
not believing you or just, you know, like you said, them trying to convince you is misunderstanding. I, I kind of understand that in a weird way because of my feelings about the climbing community. You know, I have this really, you know, I talk about it on the other podcast too, this really positive feeling about the, about the climbing community. Um, but this has also made me, you know, kind of reflect on what I actually really knew, which is that climbing has all types of people in it. And so obviously they're not all these special people that I think <laughs> right. they are, if you will, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a bursting of a bubble in a sense, but it's not really because I wasn't that stupid. It was just that I didn't kind of internalize it. And, and, and if anything, you know, hearing about this, uh, and, and you confirming, you know, that, that these things happen is also opening my eyes to it. Um, my other issues I, or my other problem is I don't have a, a real wide community in the, in the gym climbing scene. And, and, and also my community of who I actually climb with has shrunk so much as I've gotten older, you know, there's only a handful of people that I really, really climb with. So, but realizing it's just kind of like this eye opening thing of realizing that there's all these people in climbing and there's, there's, there, there, there's all types. And, but, but I guess what I'd like to ask too is, you know, other than the speaking up, uh, when they see an actual incident happening, um, do you have some ideas or, 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 um, about, Again, like changes that the climbing community could make on a sort of day to day individual basis um, that you think would, you know, make a positive in impact on including uh, uh, not just black climbers, but women climbers better and or I mean, anybody who's feeling uncomfortable coming into the scene. I, I think one step to making the particularly climbing gems more comfortable would probably be start with gyms hiring a more diverse group of people as managers and setters. Because just mm -hmm. from a, a woman's standpoint, um, this is why I, I prefer climbing in the outdoors because there's so many footholds that you can't use, you know, I'm too short as an excuse all the time. But in the, in the climbing gym, it is, you know, six foot men setting most of the routes and you know if i can't reach that foot then you know i just can't do the problem and i'm just you know it's, it's done so I, I i would like to see you know more women setters and then more people of color setters because i would feel way more comfortable in a gym where you know if an incident did happen i have someone to go to because i've had problems and who can i go to who will understand because mm -hmm. um, there's, there's, you know, no one of color. So if I do go to complain, I have to first start with, you know, explaining the event and then explaining why I think it's racially driven. Whereas if there are people of color on the staff, I would feel more comfortable going to them and say, hey, this is what happened to me. And you don't have to explain. And mm -hmm. the explaining part gets exhausting. It's I, I don't think I can explain in words how exhausting is to continuously explain why wrong things keep happening, like bad things keep happening to you. Um, so I, I think that would be one way for gyms to kind of make it more comfortable for everyone is to have a more diverse employees. Uh, other than that, it's just going to take people to just be very aware of how they're wording things and phrasing things. I think most people know like not to go up and, you know, touch a black person's hair 
But that would be, you know, a very good place to start. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> like if you see yourself like going, oh, I really want to touch your hair. Like, don't. Hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a lot of looking inwards and saying, like, is that an appropriate comment to make? You know, like maybe referencing a black person saying, like, oh, I think they could beat me up. Like those type of statements kind of allude that black people are, you know, you know, naturally aggressive. Mm-hmm. But like you don't know that person, so. But I, I get that a lot, like, cause, cause my arms are muscular and I understand, like, I'm, you know, a, a buff female. So, like, people are like, oh, I'm like, wouldn't want to meet you. Like, <laughs> like, you're gonna, you can beat me up easily. And like, I'm just walking down like a trail or walking through the store and it's those type of comments hurt. So I think that's my, my best advice is to, mm-hmm. you know, think twice from where, you know, I, offhand comment is coming from not all races get those same comments yeah it gets old (laughs) yes (laughs) so i come from a media background so there's one question i have in particular about the i don't know if you follow climbing media whatever that means um but you know i do some work as a copywriter for various companies and here and there just like side gigs I'm not on the inside of any of these companies, but the companies I've, I have interacted with, there's this huge conversation right now just about how to present themselves as being diverse and inclusive. And those words come up again and again and again um, among so many companies in the, in the outdoor industry. And despite the, a lot of this rhetoric uh, and nods toward toward these ideas it doesn't i don't get the sense that there's a lot of people who either it it doesn't seem to be sinking in and and perhaps that's um speaks to just the the nature of of marketing which is you know you sort of (laughs) you can't really take it too seriously or people don't take it seriously but i i guess i'm curious what what your impression is of the climbing industry have you been aware of these you know, gestures toward diversity and inclusivity, are they effective or what are they doing right or wrong? I am aware and I definitely have seen, you know, the recent changes um, that companies have been saying they're going to make with their, you know, black squares and, you know, writing the words on them. I'm very interested to see exactly what actions they're going to do if they really are going to, you know, hire more people of color to be on their boards, to start promoting more people of color and of different colors, because that's that's a whole nother thing. Getting, you know, the light skinned black person in your in your ads because it's easier for white people to, you know, look at. So I hope that they will actually back up their words with actions and get an actual diverse group of black people, you know, Hispanics, people of color in general, like on their boards and in their offices. But I think it's a little too early to um, really see if that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I know they've, they've had some movements in the past, but kind of being a part of it, sometimes I feel like it's not all that genuine. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like they're being just pushed, like you have to have the token black person. So, you know, get all the white people and you have your token black person and you're done. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's tough because I think there are a lot of these, you know, the token black person might come from a genuine place for those decision makers, but it does it, it just be by the nature of marketing. I guess this is what I was trying to say. It inevitably trends into this cynical interpretation of, of, um, oh, this is, you think that this is enough and you can just do this and, and go back to business as usual. A, a lot of the conversation online I, f- I find to be very polarizing because it is this all or nothing thing. But um, I'm, you know, my personal opinion on a lot of this, and feel free to respond to this in any way you wish, but the, I, I have seen climbing become a, a lot more diverse, but hardly far from the kind of diversity that is either reflective of you know, society at large, or, or maybe the diversity we would like to all aspire to in our sport, but it's come a long way in, uh, you know, the 20 plus years that I've been doing climbing. And so, and I see a lot of these conversations that it's always, you know, you're not doing enough, but it, the fact that we're even having these conversations, I think is also a, maybe a sign to be encouraged to, you know, to, to keep progressing forward. I agree. I think it's all positive sign because of all of the things that have been happening recently. I've actually had conversations with white friends who thought they, you know, they're not, you know, overtly racist, but they would make little comments and they didn't think of it as being racist comments. Um, and so now we're having these conversations where I'm like, actually, you know, that phrase, you, you may not want to use that because um, it can be taken, you know, the wrong way. And their like minds are being opened and they just had no idea. And so I, I think this is actually going to have a change because if uh, more white people can understand what microaggressions are, they can avoid doing it themselves and then they can identify other people who are doing it and then stop those people from doing it. So I can see this, you know, kind of like as a, as a chain reaction. So I, I think overall it's all good. We'll see change. I'm hoping to see change in the climbing gym. I'm hoping to not feel so alone, um, you know, in this space. You're a thoughtful person. So do you think about what the industry, and and I guess it's not even just the industry, I guess it's the climbing community, what are like the most important things they could do in terms of outreach? Because I think that's been a very big push. We, we talked to uh, someone within the, the indoor climbing industry that talked about how statistically there were a lot more uh, people of color climbing actually statistically mostly thanks to the fact that these gyms are popping up um, all over the country, which is a very accessible way to learn how to climb. In your opinion, I mean, you, you, you just kind of fell into climbing the way I see a lot of people do, and pun intended, I suppose, <laughs> uh, myself included. What do you think, though, are some important things in terms of outreach? I think it's utterly important. Um, New Mexico, you know, most of the climbers are white, but we do have a lot of you know people of color here, uh, natives and Hispanic. But it's not represented when you go outside to climb. Sure. And, and part of it is, like you said, there's no like. Well, for us, we lack gyms. We lack access. So despite there being a lot of outdoor climbing available. You know, if you don't know climbing exists, how would you know to get climbing shoes, a crash pad and go out into, you know, the woods and climb? So I think part of it for our state is that 
you know, we need more access to gyms to get, you know, high schoolers and middle schoolers into the sport. But outreach from places that already have gyms, like growing up as a, a black female, I was always looking for black athletes to look up to. Um, and Dominique Dawes was like my girl. So I was like, I'm going to be a gymnast just like Dominique Dawes because pretty much, you know, in, in all the sports outside of, you know, like track, like in ice skating and other things like that, I didn't, there were no black people for me to, you know, really look at. So I think if we can get, you know, just more people of color, you know, just on advertisements. So when, mm -hmm. so a child is looking like, oh, look, there's a black person climbing, you know, they can climb, I can climb. That's kind of how it was. So it's like, I want to be like Dominique Dawes. Like I'm going to do gymnastics. So I, I think that's one way. And then just going into schools and, you know, t telling them that climbing is for everyone because growing up, there are some things like that's, you know, like, oh, that's like a white person thing. Like sure. we, we don't do that. Um, and so we need to break down those barriers and like climbing is an everybody thing. And, you know, I've been personally trying to take out anyone who, you know, wants to try climbing. So like over Thanksgiving, I make, <laughs> I make people go to the climbing gym <laughs> And, you know, like some people don't like it, but some people have liked it. And then, you know, they go a few more times and eventually for, you know, a few individuals is caught on. So I, yeah. I think outreach is, is so important and having people of color role models is, is very important because that will that will show the youth that, you know, we're out here, too, that we can do it. They can do it. Yeah. And it sounds yeah. to me like. It's not, it can't be, it's not going to be an overnight change, you know, no, because not at all. these people have to be nurtured and, and, and to become, you know, someone that that's going to do things that, that sort of warrant attention, if you will, because I, I totally understand that this idea that there, there aren't any role models. Um, but you don't just create those people out of cloth. You just, you just don't, they, they have to find the sport and enjoy it enough to make themselves into sort of a public figure. Uh, but I get that also be, because if you take, you know, I've always said, if you take a thousand people and have them go climbing, I don't care what color they are. Only a few of them are really going to find it to be this thing like you did when you went back to the gym and all of a sudden you were like, this is what I want to do, you know? But if you, if, if those thousand people are all white, then there's no opportunity for <laughs> one of those people to rise up from the black community. So um, you take a thousand black kids and take them climbing. One of them's going to going to do it for a lifetime, at least, you know. Exactly. And I don't think a role model has to be like, you know, someone who climbs 514. Sure. It's just someone who knows how to climb safely and can, you know, take people out and not get 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 them hurt pretty much. Sure. So I, I think we have a lot of possible people out there. We just need mm -hmm. um, more, you know, financial support to be able to get them used uh, to the gyms. Okay. Well, Fabia, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. And I, I, you're, you know, you're a big inspiration to to me and Chris. Uh, certainly, Chris, who's be checking out your Instagram feed for one arm pull up tips. Um, yeah, when you said about touching your hair, if we do ever meet, and I will ask politely, but I'm at least going to want to touch your elbow. Okay. <laughs> Just to see if it's like made out of titanium or what's going on there. <laughs> 
I just, I, it's a lot of upkeep. I have to be honest. I do a lot of needling and cupping for my forearms to okay, keep them awesome. able. Right, right on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I hope we get to continue this conversation. You're welcome back on the show anytime. And hopefully next time it'll be under less uh, intense circumstances. Yes, yeah, been a crazy year. A lot of serious things to discuss. So thank you for your work and your and your voice and um and thanks for speaking to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com. <laughs>